0: Yeah um okay, shall I just shall I just start?
1: Yep, go over it.
0: Sweet. Hello and welcome to Not another Science podcast. I'm Tom
1: and I'm Helena. So Tom, tell us about this episode, what's happening?
0: Okay, so on today's episode we are back with the man, the myth, the legend, Professor Jamie Davis. He is the professor of experimental anatomy at the University of Edinburgh. And we've had him on a couple of episodes now. One back in our coronavirus mini series, where we were talking about the database that him and his lab set up, focused on drug targets that could tackle COVID. And also in our last episode, we were just chatting about kind of science, life, everything like that. This episode, we are back with the remainder of our conversation, talking about all sorts He accidentally created the first biological database on the internet. Um, I think it's
1: a testament to how lovely and how interesting he is that this is now our third episode about him.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. He's earned it.
1: (laughs) Absolutely.
0: But yeah, so he's, you know, he's had a really interesting career in, in academics. He also started his own journal, dedicated research journal, which is quite cool um, that he edited for a long time. So we had a little chat about that. And he also had some very lovely and sage words of wisdom for kind of people who are maybe struggling a little bit with, you know, imposter syndrome. So yeah, good, good chat. Great chat.
1: Was there a favorite part of the conversation for you?
0: Honestly, it's just really nice finding someone who also has a terrible memory. (laughs) If he managed to take that and create the first biological database on the internet, because he's got a terrible memory, then I feel like I could, I could do so much. For all those people with terrible memory out there.
1: There is hope.
0: There is hope for you. (laughs) Just before we dive in, we have a new sponsor on the podcast, which is very exciting. This podcast is sponsored by Greiner Bio One, supplying laboratory, diagnostic and medical products to research institutions, higher education, the NHS and others across the UK. For details of the full product range, visit www.gbo.com. So the fact that
2: everybody knows about me is that I have a terrible memory. I always did. And when I was a postdoc working on kidneys, it was the era that people were just starting to publish gene expression patterns and protein expression patterns in tissues. I'm that ancient. And remembering them was a problem. So I started to make word process tables, you know, sort of, uh, you know, lots of columns on the table of different parts of kidney, the rows on the table would be these genes in alphabetical order and just ticks and crosses. and I just did that as a maiden memoir myself. And then and then in you know in meetings when people come and visit the lab, I'd get the tables out for a conversation. Oh, can I have a copy? So eventually I had this thing of of doing the tables, putting them in envelopes once a month or so and sending them round to about twenty different labs and getting yeah. a little few postcards in return. And I, I read um, I, I for various semi-legal reasons, I've been on the internet since the 70s and somebody said that in CERN there was an interesting idea that somebody called a worldwide something or other of having pages that could be linked by hyperlinks, but not just within a computer, but from computer to computer, which was yeah. the new um, hyperlinking things that happened before, but only within. And I thought, well, this would save an awful lot of, of messing about with a photocopier. I'll I mean, I'm sure this World Wide Web thing will probably be gone in a year. But as long as it's around, I'll give it a try. <laughs> so I, I, I found out how to write a web page and, and, and wrote the tables into web pages. It was, it was so early, there were no pictures in browsers. You know, there was an old browser called Lynx that ran on Unix, and it was text only. And I did this and told my usual people, look, this is how you get onto the web, and this is how you look at the tables. So I started to, to update it like that. So this is only a couple of months after the web started. So it was, it, you know, by complete accident, this turned out to be the first biological database on the wow. web. <laughs> and, you know, this is just, you know, postdoc has had terrible memory. That's, that's really but for, for some weird reason, this, and I kept that going, but it, it meant that I, I got this weird reputation, completely undeserved, for knowing something about data. <laughs> this is just a load of tables, and knowing a lot about the web, which, of course, I didn't. And... In the US, the National Institutes of Health wanted a, a program for having a huge database about kidney development. And because they were already doing this, they took the unusual step of funding a, a non US lab to be, mm. the, to be looking after this. So, in collaboration with Duncan Davidson and Richard Bulldock in IGMM, which is down at the Western General site, we put together a proposal to do all of this and ran this database called GUDMAP right up until Trump decided that money was staying in America. The project's still going, but now now started in California. Um, so we we'd done this big kidney development database called GUTMAP. and Tony knew about this, t- Tony Hamar, and we we'd have the chats about databases because he'd been interested in starting a pharmacology one, and he'd come to me to chat about that, you know, way way in the beginning, and yeah. So we we'd have coffee type conversations, and very sadly he realised he was diagnosed with a, a terminal um, brain tumour, and he came to me to ask, well he's he had a grant to run his group and could I look after the group doing the pharmacology database yeah. until the end of the grant so of course I said yes and I got you know went to the meetings got to know them and realized what they were doing was absolutely fabulous and actually I shouldn't be thinking of looking after these people until the end of the grant I should be thinking of getting some more money in and really pushing to, to build this you know to build it up and and to keep Tony's memory going through it all, we have the Tony Hamel Memorial Lecture and the annual yeah. meetings around all of this and so forth. So that's what happened, and Wellcome Trust were very generous about, about funding an extension to immunopharmacology, which of course suddenly now in the COVID crisis has become incredibly important, I and mean, overblown immune response is one of the reasons that people die.
0: I think it's really cool that Professor Davies decided to push on with the database and has kept it running. The Guide to Pharmacology database has actually been really useful in the wake of COVID as Jamie and his team created a specific section of the database that contained a list of all the possible drugs and drug targets that could be used to treat the disease. We covered all this in episode 3 of our coronavirus miniseries, so go and check it out if you're interested. Professor Davies also mentioned there how an overactive immune response is one of the reasons that people can die from COVID, and we covered this in episode 1 of our coronavirus miniseries, where we learned about what makes some people more susceptible to disease than others. It's another sweet episode, so go and have a cheeky listen.
2: Um, and then we have, you know, extensions to malaria. We've just teamed up with Antibiotic Research UK to have information on antibiotic resistance and so forth. So this is this is steadily growing. And so that's the story. So, so there never was, you know, I, I, for some years I was sort of, you know, sitting in these pharmacology meetings with my ladybird book of Janet and Janet, <laughs> drug, trying, because I'd never been to a pharmacology lecture in my life at the time. So, you know, just trying to catch up. And Everybody, you know, these amazing world class pharmacologists or people who are research leaders of the big name drug companies were so patient and so nice to me, explaining what they were doing and just, you know, I was expecting utter impatience. But no, they were, you know, I, I, I've had these amazing kind of pharmacology tutorials to some of the, the leading drug developers in the world. It's just just over coffee or over dinner. <laughs> it's it's been an amazing little journey. And yeah. the, the team are wonderful, the team the team of curators and developers. Yeah. Which is good because, I, you know, I, I absolutely rely on, on their abilities.
0: Yeah. I guess uh, something that is, has become apparent from our, our chat is that so much of science just relies on kind of understanding where you don't necessarily know something very well and not being afraid to go and just ask the right person or yes something like yeah.
2: that. Yeah, I mean, I suppose it's funny. One of the things I notice teaching undergraduates and even graduate students sometimes is they're really afraid to say, I don't know. And upset by not knowing, and maybe, maybe because I had that kind of late conversion to to developmental biology, so I've always been playing catch up. Apart from the one biology of cells course, I wasn't going to all of the other biological courses. I was doing physics and physical chemistry things. So you know, I was constantly playing catch up from then on. For most undergraduate teaching, I've I've been asked to teach stuff I know nothing about until somebody says, "Oh, can you do this set of lectures?" And I'm, oh, right. So, you know, it, it sort of feels natural, not, the problem isn't, it isn't to be expected to know stuff. I mean, there's a, you think of the size of a library, that's just a vast repository of stuff we don't know. The point in being bothered when you don't know something, the, the idea is just, you know, to enjoy finding out and sometimes to realise that outsiders can sometimes ask questions which turn out to be useful. And, and I see the same thing, you know, working with those guys I was talking about in Europe, the, you know, the botanist and the, and the, and the, the cyberneticist the questions they ask me about my system are really smart questions that I don't think of myself because I'm too close to it. And and they're kind enough to say reciprocal things that my blundering around in the dark questions about their fields, occasionally, they think, oh, actually, that's quite a good... So I I think there's a a terrible myth that scientists are supposed to be sort of all-knowing. And no, we're blunderers around in the dark. I think that's much more to do with it. Than, than knowing. It's, it's being happy with uncertainty, happy with ways of finding out, and really not being embarrassed to say, I haven't the faintest clue what's going yeah.
0: on. And I think it's interesting what you say about um, people who aren't in the same field asking those kind of the basic questions that end up being the really smart questions.
2: One of the reasons I like teaching, actually, you know, I enjoy teaching anyway, but having undergraduates are fantastic at asking questions I've forgotten how to ask. They're fantastic at looking excited at stuff and reminding me, actually, this is amazing. Thank you, undergraduate. You're right. It's just, yeah, actually, this, this you know, on, on a dull February day, it can be such a lift. I, I think as well, you know, a lot of people talk in academia about imposter syndrome, where people, people sort of wonder, you know, they, they think, well, they're surrounded by all these clever people and somehow that, you know, they shouldn't be there. And what happens if I get found out? And I think one of the things that's, Nobody believes you when you say this, but, but the antidote to it, it isn't to think that you're clever or something, it's to realise nobody else knows what the heck they're doing. <laughs> and, and then you realise you're not an imposter, you're just another person who doesn't really know what they're doing, you know, but is doing the best they can, and, and that's how we all are, really.
0: I think that will be uh, very comforting to a lot of the listeners.
2: <laughs> but, but it's true, you know, the whole of science is like that. If we knew what we were doing, it wouldn't be research. You know, it's, it's a simple point, but a lot of people forget that, and, and they they get really stressed that they've no idea what's going on. Well, that's the idea of research.
0: Yeah, and the, the best stuff will come from not having a clue. You know, you might have a terrible memory for uh, gene expression and then end up creating an <laughs> international database. <laughs> I wanted to talk about how science is moving so quickly at the moment, and it kind of throws up these issues with, with how we do science traditionally. The big thing is the proper citation of work from, from databases of gene expression from drug targets and stuff like that. So I wondered if you could talk about your collaboration with Peter, is it Buhnman? Yes, yes. Um, on, on ensuring that people get cited properly from your databases.
2: Yes, so, so the problem here it is exactly as you said. It's that it's easy to cite a database as a thing, but the database can be massive, have, have literally you know, tens of thousands or maybe millions of entries. So yeah. giving credit to the person who wrote the database, you know, me and my, my colleagues, it would not be right for a piece of information that was actually discovered by somebody working in South Africa on a drug or whatever. Um, and Peter Biniman's been interested in this problem. He's, he's a brilliant specialist in databases and in, in informatics generally. And he's been in the game for a long time and has been bothered by this for a long time. We've been, you know, we've had many discussions about how you can cite specific parts of databases properly. For all of this to work, we wanted the citations to, to be picked up by things like scholar Google so that all of the kind of, I mean, I, I really hate this world, but there are automatic ways that, that, you know, computer programs will search scientific literature and see who's published what and how many times it's been say, cited and give yeah. them some brownie points according to all of this. And the, yeah. these mm-hmm. numbers like H indices and things which are misleading nonsense, but, but that's just the way the world is. So we wanted to make it so that people would get credit for contributing to a database because these machines would at least detect that they'd done so. And the library worked with us to create what's effectively a new electronic journal, but it's a journal to which nobody can directly contribute. Instead, each set of database entries, and that may be a single entry, but typically the people who help us put the database together are giving us information on a whole family of molecules. So each set of that, there'll be a kind of abstract from the database entry, which can be produced by machine, and the set of authors, and the citable entry for all of this, and then a link straight back to the database and a link to all of the information that they drew on in order to make the data entry. And importantly, the Google type scrapers that are looking through the whole world of science will pick those up because it is a genuine journal run from Edinburgh. I mean, everything's correct about it. The odd thing is you can't actually send in a paper to it. And that's, that's a very interesting solution to, to a problem. All of the credit for the, for the idea goes to Peter and, and for the implementation to him and Simon Harding, the developer. I, mm-hmm. you know, I've been in part of the conversations and part of the writing, but really they deserve all of the credit for this.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you kind of hope that it's something that's gonna be picked up by all these other databases and, and put to use?
2: I think, yeah, I, th- I think as, partly as long as we're in the world of people putting together silly metrics for scientists, then it is important. One of the problems of databases is that they die when there's lack of funding. Even if the actual database is left on a server somewhere, as everybody knows, that people are constantly updating standards of the web and updating operating systems. And eventually, any piece of old software won't run on the new version of something and then it's dead. The problem is vast amounts of work can get lost. Having exported you know, things like PDFs, which presumably will live for a very long time, of the contents of databases, it won't be as easy to use as the database, but at least the information is there and it's not lost. Every two years, we generate a special issue of the British Journal of Pharmacology, which is full of an abstract. I mean, it consists of nothing but an abstract of our database. So at least, you know, there's a kind of backup to the libraries of the world of our database every two years, whatever happens. And I think these sort of citable abstract things also form part of that. They, They move some of the data offline so it isn't lost altogether. But I'd love it if the world would just grow up and stop coming to these silly metrics of scientists. And actually, if you're trying to interview somebody or you're shortlisting them for an interview, don't look at a metric, read their papers rather than just, oh, this guy's got an H index of 38, but she's got one of 47, so let's employ her. For ridiculous reasons, connected to the database, actually, my own H-index is stupidly high. Lots of people in my lab are now listed in this web of science, 0.1% most cited scientist in the world list. And, you know, that's why I feel completely able to say this is absolute nonsense. And we're there because of the number of times people cite cite entities in our database from other papers. We're not there because of people doing normal citations. But it just highlights how silly these numbers
1: are.
0: It's, yeah, something that's always confused me, looking at journal power scores and stuff like that. Not really understanding where that number comes from, it just seems like a such an arbitrary value.
2: Yeah, I mean, of course there's an algorithm to generate it, but it doesn't tell you very much about any individual paper. I think the much more interesting graph, i have forgotten where this is published, but it's pinned to a notice board in my lab, where somebody plotted the fraction of papers that are retracted, as being not just corrected, but fully retracted, either fraudulent or just so bad they had to go. Yeah. Against the impact factor of the journal, it is very close to a straight line. Wow. So, the Journal of Medicine, Nature, that bunch have a high rate of retraction, whereas, you know, Journal of Anatomy and those sorts, almost nothing. Um, and presumably, because if you're going to make a fraud, there's no point in doing it for a minor journal. <laughs> <laughs> But, but you know I, either way, I think, I think it's, a, it's a comment about not worshipping particular journals because of their covers.
0: So my next question to Professor Davies was about the research journal that he helped to launch. Um, but I absolutely butchered the pronunciation in the interview, so I'm just going to do like a little intro here. Um, so yeah, Professor Davies launched a journal. It's called Organogenesis, and it is a place for scientists to publish research on the development of organs, hence the name. The organo bit comes from the focus on organs, and genesis, of course, means creation. So organogenesis is just the creation of organs.
2: I was editor for eight years, uh, which is the last the, two terms, and then, and then stepped down from that. It was great fun to do, but by the time the eight years was up, stepping down with relief. But organogenesis, it was great fun launching a new journal. Fortunately, just before these days of predatory nonsense journals, it would be, I think it would be incredibly hard to launch a new journal now. And yeah, it was, it was fun to do, but, you know, it took a lot of time.
0: Yeah, I mean, how do you go about setting up a new journal? Uh, what, what is that process like?
2: Well, it was an established publisher who came to me to ask if I'd edit it. That's Ron Landis. So for me, the, it was agreeing a scope for the journal, Finding a good editorial board, and that's partly people you can trust to do a good job, and it's partly people whose names are well known enough that it's clear this is not you know this journal is serious and then for the very beginning, you know really you have to i mean nowadays this this of course has 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 changed its reputation entirely, but back then it wasn't a dodgy thing to do to be writing to people to sort of say, Look here's a new journal, and this is what we're trying to do, and you know if if you've got any data that would fall into this, it would be great if you could come to us. But we don't have an impact factor yet. We are asking people actually to do a bit of a high risk thing. On the other hand, they know that although of course everything has to be scientifically sound, the threshold of how exciting it is will be lower for the first issues because you're not going to get the most exciting stuff sent to a journal which isn't going to appear on PubMed for two years. So that bit, the first couple of years, is always a bit rocky about, you know, do you have enough really good material to, to fill the issues? Fortunately we did. We were only publishing quarterly back then. And then, you know, as people start to see things that are in that journal, then the momentum starts to build and the whole you know, people start sending things and it, you know, it, it what it's a kind of you cross a barrier and then suddenly you become somewhere that people will want to publish. And yeah. then everything gets Easier in the sense of not being worrying about will we have enough to fill an issue, but on the other hand, of course, then the whole business of, of sending things out to re, you know, for review and dealing with all of that stuff yeah. to take more of more ahead of time. The other thing I'd never expected is the extraordinary things that get sent to journals. You know, the, the number of creationist proofs that I had sent to me, and some of them, you know, on paper, sent, sent physically through the post. That well, had obviously been sent to journal after journal after journal. Or, you know, there was one really amazing piece of work, which, and I, the trouble is, the, the, the author would, th- would think I'm being insulting saying this. I know, because he's threatened to take me to court over, over not publishing. <laughs> yeah. But it's actually, I think, a work of amazing science fiction. No, I mean, I mean, I mean that in a, in a kind of respectful way. It was, effectively, it was imagining development working a completely different way as a mechanical field in the egg driving differentiation. And it was a kind of scientific fantasy. If the premises were correct, everything would have held together. And I thought it was absolutely brilliant for that. <laughs> it wasn't science, it was a piece of creation, a sort of very scientific art. And unfortunately, he got extremely stroppy when, when, when we wouldn't publish, As instead of threatening court action and all, all yeah. And I used it. Eventually, I used the... Uh, I got permission. I mean, finally, we kind of, you know, settled down a bit in, 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 in the way we were writing to each other. And I got his permission to use it in uh, finals exam. No, sorry, the, the author put it on the web, so I, I gave a link to the web. And the idea was, was to read this and then to give the shortest evidence-based argument that would refute that this is really the case from what people knew of, of, of developmental biology and it was a really interesting exam to mark and I think the students actually found it quite an, a surprising quite <laughs> an interesting one to do because it really makes you think so that was the most interesting crazy thing that was sent but there were lots of creationist tracts and you know and just all sorts of things or, or bizarre papers on subjects like <laughs> biology or astrophysics
0: and it's going what? what? (laughs) (laughs)
2: Nobody warned me that happens.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah I I mean is there any any other sort of just really surprising things that you learned that you didn't realise would happen uh, through kind of getting involved in a new journal?
2: One surprising thing I suppose I sort of knew about this because I'd been a victim of it but that referees can be so rude and as an editor I would Sometimes, you know, I would always pass on the referee's comments, but my covering letter would often be apologizing for the tone of them. Mm-hmm. Or sometimes I'd write back to the referee and said, please, could you rephrase that? The, the, the point stands, but there is no need to be rude. You know, do not comment on the intelligence of the, of the, of the scientist. And then the other thing that was, that was interesting is, you know, I think editors ought to play an active role. They ought to read reviews and think carefully. And something which has always annoyed me as an author, but it, you, I could see it so much more clearly as an editor, is the way that some referees just add loads of work, which, are, which is not needed. You know, To be slightly silly about this, let's say that somebody had published a, a really good paper about how mice hop. And one referee said, that's really fascinating. Now tell me about rabbits. You don't need the rabbits for a paper on how mice hop And there were so many examples of that. I mean, it was, of course, normally molecular, but I just wanted to give a clear example.
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> As an editor, I always thought it was my job to say, actually, no, these points for, for referee one, you must answer because they're about the robustness of the work. All of this stuff that's extra, no, by all means, just say no. And I think a good editor's job is to do that. We've all been victims of reviewers where the editor hasn't felt
0: it out that way. It seems, yeah, it seems like a very uh, frustrating process.
2: Yes, and the other thing that surprised me was the um, robust language of some authors when they were writing back. Just there's a normal kind of standard, of professional. communication. <laughs> I always expected it would be maintained.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Qu- quickly, uh, quickly. I
2: wonder if it. alcohol was involved. Sometimes this. <laughs> And the replies are very late at night. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I suppose it's, it's you like to think that research is this kind of sterilised thing that, that happens. It's very objective. And, but, you know, it's human beings doing this at the end of the day. And yeah. a, lot of, a lot of they put a lot of themselves into the work. I've only got one more question for you. <laughs> You'll be glad to know. What are the worst and best things about your job?
2: Oh, gosh. That's a really interesting question. It's really difficult to think of a worse thing about a research job. It's when you are working with a really talented young scientist, a postdoc, for example, and they've put their all into a project and they're doing really well, and you've both put your all into a grant application that follows it up and it doesn't get funded. And it's not just what it does to the project. It's the way it's kind of messing up their career trajectory. And, you know, I'm very lucky. A lot of the people who worked with me have got PI positions of their own and they're doing fine. You know, but this has happened. And I think that's always the worst. And when I haven't written a grant for a specific person, I can kind of shrug when it's not funded. But when it's for a specific person, that's when it hurts. The best, it's some combination of discovering something or realizing something for the first time or seeing the face of a Stephen or colleague who's just done that. Yeah. I don't know which is the best of those two. <laughs> but that but that excitement of just that first time the penny drops or the first time you see something, you know, when you go from that's weird down a microscope to suddenly Oh <laughs> you know, suddenly the, the weird thing the penny drops.
0: Once again, a massive thank you to Jamie Davies for coming on the podcast. He was so generous with his time and we had a really, really nice conversation back in April and managed to stretch it to three episodes. So I think that's pretty cool. If you want to go and check out his research, go and check out his blog on his lab website. That's super interesting, all about life and science. We'll pop the link in the show notes.
1: This podcast is brought to you by the Edinburgh University Science Magazine. In each episode, we explore fascinating themes and ideas, talk to awesome researchers about their work, and find out about the science being done by our very own staff and students here at the university. If you'd like to get in touch with a question, suggestion, or if you want to be featured on the podcast, you can reach us on our Facebook page, Edinburgh University Science Media, or at our Twitter, at EUSCI. That's at E-U-S-C-I. You can also drop us an email at usai.podcast.gmail.com and you can find the show notes and the latest issue of the magazine at usai.org.uk. We would love to hear from you, so please don't hesitate to get in touch.
0: This episode was edited by my partner in crime, Helena Corning. That's me! The podcast logo was designed by Usai chief editor, Apple Chew, and awesome podcast cover art was designed by Heather Jones, our social media and marketing genius. The intro music is an edited version of Funkorama. And the outro music is an edited version of Funk Game Loop, both by Kevin McLeod. I've been your host, Tom Edwick. Until next time, keep it science.
1: Here are some choice outtakes from our recording of this episode. Caution, this is where we earn our explicit rating. Because you Don't are technically the host, I just butt in. <laughs> um, all right, um, let's do this outro now, and then we can cut some more. Let's um, smash it.
0: This episode was edited by my partner in crime, Helena Corney.
1: That's The me.
0: podcast. Oh, oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. That's good. Okay. I'm going again and <laughs> drop it in. <laughs> okay. Let's do this thing. Yes. Okay. All right. I'm, I'm going. Once again, massive thank yous to oh not thank yous. God. All right. <laughs> oh. This is a nightmare. <laughs>
1: Okay.
0: One of these days. All right. This podcast is sponsored by Griner Bio One, supplying laboratory, diagnostic, and medical products to research since tins- it. Oh, fucked it. Absolutely fucked it. <laughs> From the top.